we might have to call EMTs if we did that. And it uh, didn't seem like a good idea, but pretend I did that. How about, how about that? Just pretend I did that. You know what I'm thinking about when I saw this? I, uh, I had the privilege of speaking at uh, Angola State Penitentiary in Louisiana, the largest prison in this country. And uh, it's the prison on which uh, Shawshank Redemption and um, Dead Man Walking and The Green Mile, those movies are based on. It's not historically uh, not a good place. Uh, but there's a revival going on at Angola. Uh, they have built or uh, allowed a branch of New Orleans Seminary to uh, grant degrees on that, uh, that 5,000 inmate campus. And uh, about four or 500 guys now have Masters of Divinity. Uh, and they're chaplains in the prison, so a revival's going on there. But there's a big chapel there that was built by, uh, uh, by Billy Graham um, Ministries. And it's the Billy Graham Chapel. And over to the side, they have this huge organ that was donated by George Beverly Shea, who just passed away recently over, at the age of over 100 years old. And I got to preach there in that place. And uh, my choir were all murderers, uh, really murderers. And the gentleman who was playing the organ was a, a mass murderer. And uh, I was... Uh, allowed to broadcast into Murderer's Row, the, um, the death row uh, segment there, which has quite a few guys on it. And um, I was thinking, when Billy Graham first went there, he saw uh, the craftsmen that were there, and they were building coffins. And um, they were simple, very simple coffins like this one. And he decided he wanted to be buried in one of those coffins. And it's already been made, and uh, his wife, Ruth, was buried in a coffin uh, made just like this from, from Angola Prison, and uh, he has one waiting for him, and he can't wait to see Ruth again. Well, I'm honored to be here. Glad you're here, Christian Life Church. Um, if you're a guest tonight, I want to particularly welcome you. Thank you for coming, and I want to suggest that uh, you need to come back when I'm not here. Um, they do this every week, right about this time. And so I, I just I hope you come back um, and bring somebody with you. I, I, I think you need a church. Everybody needs a church family. You just do. And this will be a great one right here. And so I encourage you to come back. We certainly couldn't have made it through the things we went through without a church family. And so I recommend this one highly, and I encourage you to come back. Now, now, here you saw the bulletin. There's all kinds of stuff happening here, and uh, there's a lot that you'll hear about a little bit later on, too. So, come back to church. I am going to share a testimony tonight, and it's a great privilege to do so. It's based on this book, 90 Minutes in Heaven, and uh, it's a book I wrote, so I would never have to talk about it. And uh, that has not gone very well at all. Yeah, this book has now uh, sold uh, six and a half million copies in 46 languages. And it's really a book that I just wrote so I could put something really difficult behind me. Do you ever notice how sometimes God uses those things and puts it in front of you? That actually becomes what he wants you to kind of endure and go through and experience. And so um, this is that book, uh, and I'm stunned by the response to the book. Uh, I just, uh, I'm editing on, on the plane today coming here from Houston. I was editing the 10th anniversary edition of this book. 
uh, in June of this year, or July of this year, that edition will be out. Stunning. Little did we know when we wrote the book. Well, my friend Cease Murphy and I uh, have written four books together, and one of them is a devotional book. It's the one on the top. And the reason I'm kind of showing these to you is because my son Chris is at a book table out in the lobby out there, and if everyone came up to him and asked him what each book was about, it might take a while. So I'll just tell you, the devotional book is in the middle. There are 90 devotionals in there, some of my favorite stories that are in there. And uh, first of the year is a great time to start a devotional if you don't have one. And uh, so there's one a day for 90 days. The one on the end, on the top, is a book called Heaven is Real, Lessons on Earthly Joy. It is a book about overcoming tragedy and loss, pain and difficulty. It is a book I really wanted to write because I had to figure out how to do that. I was never going to be the same again. And so it's really a book about new normals. And um, it, it seems to have been amazingly used by God. We, 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 we're very, it's very frank. It's very honest. And um, hopefully it will be helpful to you. Uh, on the bottom, on the, on the right-hand side, your right-hand side, yes, is Getting to Heaven. Uh, departing instructions for your life now. And it's a book about the words of Jesus about how to have a meaningful life on the way to heaven. You know, we talk about heaven tonight, and we are, but uh, God wants us to have an abundant life on the way there. And so these are his words about having a meaningful life on the way to heaven. Jesus' words, uh, mostly contained in John 13 through 17. And then I'll tell you a little bit about that later, that other book on the other side, A Walk to the Dark. That's my wife's new book uh, for caregivers and people who are trying to get through a long, dark night themselves. A Walk Through the Dark. A lady walked up to me with this book not too long ago and handed it to me, and it was in bad shape. I mean bad shape. Torn up, very dirty. And I almost commented on the condition of the book. I'm glad I didn't. Um, and she said, would you sign it for me? I said, sure. And I'll sign books after this, uh, this uh, worship service is over with. So I'm signing books. And she said, this book belonged to my daughter. I said, oh, really? It was your daughter's book? Yes. Uh, she said, um, I didn't know she owned it. I really didn't know it was her book. Um, it was in her backpack when she got off the school bus and was run over and killed. I said, this was your daughter's book? Yes. I said, was your daughter a, a follower of Jesus? Was she, um, was she a believer? She said, oh, yes, my daughter is one of the most faithful people I've ever known. She was a great inspiration to me. I said, I'm sorry for your temporary separation from her. It's real, but it won't last. She said, I didn't know she had it, but they gave it to me, and I began to read it myself. And I didn't realize it, but she had written all kinds of stuff in the book. She had underlined a lot of scripture verses that are in here. and She'd drawn lines under things and arrows and all kinds of stuff, written in the margins. And she said, Mr. Piper, as I finished reading the book, I knew I wanted to go where she is, is and, and so I gave my heart to Jesus. And I said, um, I said I'm so happy for you. Um, one day you won't even remember that you and your daughter were separated down here. See, the little girl wasn't planning to die that day, but thank God she was ready when she did. So here's the good news tonight. We're taking reservations tonight. See, our prayer is that you won't leave here without being ready for heaven. Yeah, that's what we're here for.
And we hope to help you have a better time on the way. Because life can be pretty awful sometimes, can it? Sure can. I, I found that out the hard way. Jesus did too, you know. He, he had some real struggles here, and um, he knew when he showed up that he wasn't going to get to stay. I guess you've noticed the death rate here on earth is 100%. We don't, we don't get out of this alive. I mean, there's only one option if you want to live and never die, and, and, and that's to be taken when Jesus returns, you know. But other than that, you're going to die. And I'm not trying to be maudlin. I'm, I'm just trying to be realistic. You know, it's going to happen. So you've got to be ready all the time, like the little girl. Jesus is in the last week of his life, and he's coming to Jerusalem, and um, he had a good entry. Everything started off very well as he entered into the city. But the more he began to teach and the more he began to share, the less... The response became more uh, painful. I mean, people really began to kind of turn away from him, especially the leaders. I mean, the, uh, especially the, the religious leaders of the time. They were highly threatened by his teaching because he, he, he made some profound promises. I mean, he began to say that you don't really need a priest. You, you can just talk to God and that he is the priest, and that through him... I mean, he just began to say some things that really upset the apple cart. And so they've come to the end of the week, or near the end of the week, and they're having dinner. But it wasn't just any dinner. It was like a dinner they had every year to celebrate freedom, Passover. And so they're in a borrowed room, as usual, and they're upstairs, and they're lounging around this table. And I know you've seen the Da Vinci painting with the long table, and they're all facing out, but truly, it was a small room. Who would they be facing? There's no one there. So it's actually not a long table. It's a small table. Uh, near the ground, and they're reclining on probably what we would call cushions. Because remember, their feet went out to the side, and they had not washed their feet, and Jesus ended up doing it for them right before this. And so here they are around the table. They're passing around the same elements they've been passing around for hundreds of years. And he's looking into their eyes, and he can see that they're not doing very well. They're frightened. They're troubled. They're scared. And they had reason to be. As far as we know, all of them except one was eventually martyred very cruelly and painfully themselves. They were all killed except one. And so here they are around the table and it's not, not going well. So he looks into their eyes because he understands how they're feeling. Uh, he always does. And he wants to give them some encouragement that he'll know they'll need later on. And remarkably, that same encouragement applies to us here in January of 2014. It's for us. So in case you wandered in tonight and you really need some encouragement, you need some positive words, here are some from Jesus to his followers. And to everyone, really, let not your hearts be troubled. Do you believe in God? Then believe in me also, he said. In my Father's house or many mansions, or rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am you will be also. And you know where I'm going, and you know how to get there. If you read, especially the synoptic gospels, you'll find out that Jesus had been giving them a lot of preparatory words. He'd been saying a lot of things to them that he knew they were going to need later on. 
There's a verse over in Matthew that says, then they remembered what he had said. Yeah, and so he was setting them up, you know, because he's about to leave in the flesh, and he knows that they're going to need some encouragement after he's gone. Well, they're not listening. It's kind of like being in church sometimes. You know, we're there, but we're not there. And so he, he, we know he, they're not because Thomas stands up from the dinner table after Jesus had just said this, and he said, we don't know where you're going, and we don't know how to get there. Which is, reminds me of just how much I am like Thomas. And we all are. But I got to hand it to Thomas. He asked the right questions. And maybe you've come here tonight to this church, and your question would be, is heaven real? And how do I get there? Great questions. Thomas asked them. So Jesus responds, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So i got to tell you to your face tonight, if you're counting on something else getting you to heaven, it's not going to work. Jesus is the way. He's the way. And if you, if you come looking for truth, let me suggest that Jesus is the truth. The very truth. And if you're looking for a better life now, an eternal life someday, Jesus is the life. The way, the truth, and the life. And he's very, very clear about this. If you want to go to the Father, you're going to have to go through the Son. I found this out the hard way. I got killed on the way to church. Yeah, I was on my way to church when all this happened. Uh, we were attending a pastor's conference in East Texas, and this next picture is a picture of the front gates of that conference center. And, and it, was a, it was not a beautiful day. It was, a, it was kind of a cold, rainy January day. Uh, 25 years ago, right now, I was in the ICU of Memorial Hermann Medical Center in Houston, not expected to ever leave alive. Because it was January of 1989. And I got in the car that morning. Now, by your standards, this is practically bikini weather, but it was about 35. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's kind of cool in East Texas. And uh, it was raining, really kind of a really kind of a miserable day. And so I'm headed to my church. It's about 130 miles from there. This is a place called Trinity Pines, and my church is south of Houston in a small town called Alvin. And uh, so I'm, I'm headed that way. And I drove out to the conference center gates, and you, you can't tell it, but really the highway goes past the conference center. So if you go out to the end of the road, you're going to have to go this way or that way. And I'd always gone that way every time I'd been here before. And I decided that day to go to the right, because I'd never been that way before, and I wanted to see what was down there. Maybe, are you a curious person by nature? I mean, I like to go to see things I've never seen before. Wow, did I see something that day. But I just went to the right out of curiosity. Maybe you're... Maybe you're here out of curiosity yourself. You, you heard they had a dead guy at the church. You wanted to go see him. I think that's a good reason. I mean, don't you think curiosity is a great reason to go to church? Because, see, you learn stuff here all the time. So I'm, I'm going that way. And if you go that way, you have to cross this big lake. Not quite like the one we have over here, but it was a pretty big lake. And, it, and it's got a long, elevated highway and uh, water on both sides. And at the end of it is an old bridge. And I'm telling you, it's an old bridge. I mean, it was built to honor veterans of World War I. That's a pretty old bridge. So here's the bridge. It was, uh, I'm driving onto it, 
It's still there to this day. It is no longer in use. There's a nice four-lane highway beside it. But in those days, it was the only way to go across that lake. Obviously, they left it because it's a memorial bridge. And so uh, I, I was driving onto it. I've got a stack of sermons on the seat beside me. The next Sunday morning, I'm going to begin a new sermon series on what we believe. We had a lot of new Christians in our church, a lot of new believers. We really wanted to talk about our beliefs. I think that's a good thing to do from time to time. So the next Sunday morning, I was going to preach a sermon called, I Believe in a Great God. And the next Sunday was going to be, I Believe in Jesus, the Son of God. And I Believe in the Holy Spirit. And I believe in, in communion, the shared meal of the new covenant. And I believe in baptism. You can see where these things were going. I never did preach any of those sermons in my church. In fact, I've only got a copy of one of those sermons. And the only reason I have it is because a state policeman found it on the floor of my car and thought my family might like it as a keepsake. It's the sermon, I believe in a great God. I have it at home in my office. It's covered in my dried blood. Well, I'm going on to the bridge. I'm on my way to teach a Bible study. It's Wednesday night, or will be Wednesday night. I'm leaving uh, right before noon on Wednesday morning. And I'm about to exit the opposite end of the bridge. Well, you can't really see it from this direction, but the highway goes up fairly steeply at the end of that bridge. Coming over that steep embankment onto the bridge is an 18-wheeler, tractor-trailer truck. He's driving about 20 miles an hour over the speed limit, and uh, he said somebody pulled out at the last minute at the other end of the bridge, which means that he's going to hit that car because he's going downhill too fast. There's not enough space left to stop the truck. And so his decision is hit the car or go around the car and hope no one's coming down the bridge. And since he's going downhill and there's a big superstructure over the top of the bridge, he can't see down the bridge. So his decision is split second. He decides to go around the car. And when he did, he, he hit me head on. The nine wheels on the driver's side of the truck just rolled over my car, just crushed it, shoved it up against the railing of the bridge. He went off the back, swerved back over in the lane he was supposed to be in, hit the car he was trying to miss, and then hit another car. So it's a four-vehicle pileup on the Trinity River Bridge. Horrific accident. There's just carnage everywhere, and it's in the middle of nowhere. Very isolated area because there's just nothing out there but fishing camps and resorts and places like that. And so it's, it's a standstill on the bridge. And it took a long time for police and ambulances to arrive. They did. They start working the accident. And they examined the victims. And they discovered, as they examined the victims, that it wasn't quite as bad as it looked because the truck driver and the drivers of the other two cars were not hurt badly at all. They were shaken up. They were treated and released. So that meant that the four paramedics that were dispatched to the bridge now are working on me. Well, you wouldn't normally have four paramedics working on the same victim, but there was no one else to treat, and it was really obvious I was in bad shape. I mean, there were pieces of me laying all over the place, and so they're doing whatever they can to try to revive me, try to resuscitate me, try to restore me, try to bring me back. And in spite of their best efforts there on the bridge, they were unsuccessful. Four paramedics pronounced me dead on the scene on the Trinity River Bridge. Which I think brings up an interesting question. What am I doing in Mount Prospect? <laughs> Which of course is the same question I'm going to ask you. What are you doing here? I don't mean just in church tonight. I mean, why, what do you have to show for your life up to this point? 
Put a bookmark on that. We'll come back to it. They covered up the body so nobody would have to see it. It was gruesome, really. This next picture is taken by the local newspaper. And you can't see it very well, but inside of the wreckage of the car is a tarp. And my body is under that tarp. They're waiting for a coroner. Anytime you have a fatality like this, you have to have an investigation. Who's responsible for this death? And that's what they're waiting for. So it's a standstill on the bridge. Nobody can move anything because it's evidence. And so everything is just standstill. Well, back behind me, among all the people who are waiting to cross that bridge, are lots of pastors. Lots of them. They've left the same conference I've left. They're on their way to do the same thing I was going to do, which is lead a Wednesday night Bible study. No one's going anywhere now. Some of them began to leave their cars and walk up to the bridge. Curiosity, what's going on? Well, one of those pastors, a pastor by the name of Dick Honorecker. Pastor Dick Honorecker served the church north of Houston. My church was south of Houston. We're actually on the highway on the way to do the same thing. Lead a Wednesday night study, but we're not going anywhere now. He's backed up and I'm dead. So he walks up under the bridge. He sees all this carnage and he says to one of those policemen, Officer, I see there's been a terrible wreck here. I'm a pastor. I would like to pray for the victims. And the policeman said, well, that's very nice, sir, but there's no one to pray for. Everyone else is okay. The other victims, the man in the red car is dead. He's a fatality. He didn't make it. And when the policeman said that, God spoke to the pastor, which I think is a good thing. Don't you? Yeah, I want a pastor that God speaks to, and I want to be one. And incidentally, I'll say this. God's doing a lot more speaking than we are listening. So he was speaking that day, and, God, and this guy's listening, because here's what God said. Pray for the man in the red car. Well, that would have been me. <clears throat> this didn't make any sense to him. His theology did not include praying for dead people. He just didn't, just didn't and it was too late. But he knew that God was speaking to him. So he was obedient, which of course is what God is always interested in, obedience. If we only did stuff we understood, we probably wouldn't do very much. You know, it's faith that God's looking for. So, by obedience, he says to the policeman, I need to pray for the man on the red car. And the policeman said, did you hear what I said? I mean, he's, he's dead. Well, that may be, but God's told me to pray for him. Go ahead, pastor, suit yourself. No, no, I don't want to just pray for him. I want to get in the car and put my hand on him and pray for him. No, no, you can't do that. It's, it's too dangerous. It's twisted metal, broken glass. If you get over there, you could, get, you could be a victim yourself. Well, God's told me to pray for him. I have to put my hand on him to pray for him. So they got a little discussion. And, and finally, the policeman just kind of surrendered and said, all right, you can get under there until the, the coroner gets here. Then you'll have to get out. So Dick can't come in from the front of the back. He, he has to come in from the back of the car, the, the front or the side of the car. He has to come in from the back of the car. And he lifts up the tarp. He begins to examine me. He had a medical background uh, in the early part of his life. And, and when he did, he discovered the only thing I didn't break was my right arm. That's the only thing I did not break in the accident, my right arm. Uh, my son, Chris, um, that you'll meet out there, he, he says that I didn't break my right arm so I could sign books, but I don't think that's true. <laughs> I mean, maybe. So Dick Honorecker reaches from behind, he puts his hand on my right shoulder, he's under that tarp, in that picture he's under there, and he's praying over my dead body. This picture was taken probably an hour after the wreck. Because that equipment that's laying in front of the car was not brought out originally. Removing a, a living person is very different from removing someone who's dead from a wrecked car. 
So everything's at a standstill. Dick on a record's under the tarp praying over my dead body. He's not the only one praying by that time because, you know, they did search me to try to find who I was. And when they found my identity, they called my home south of Houston in a town called Friendswood. It's been there a couple hundred years. It's founded by Quakers, and so the town's named Friendswood. And we lived there right beside Alvin. My wife was not at home that morning. She was teaching school. My wife taught elementary school for 34 years. She taught children's children's children. She is the hero of this story. I am not. I survived this accident. She overcame the accident. She took care of our three children. She continued to teach school so we could have some insurance to pay for the millions of dollars it would take to put me back together again. She emptied bedpans and balanced the checkbook. She's a hero. I'm so glad her new book is out, A Walk Through the Dark. It's, it's the companion book. It tells you what it was like when she was in that classroom that morning when the teacher's aide came in and said, Mrs. Piper, you're wanted in the office immediately. And her life would never be the same. Eva was teaching school that morning and our kids were attending class. So they found my card, my business card in my wallet, South Park Church Alvin. And they called the church. That is where I was headed. They didn't know that, but they found out soon enough because the people on the other end said, well, he's on his way here now. Well, it's, he, we, we just need to tell you that that uh, they, they didn't want to tell them that I would, had died because my family has not been notified yet. They just told them I was in a horrific accident. So the church, armed with only this information, launches into a massive prayer meeting. I mean, they start calling everybody in the Houston phone book. That's, you know, the city right behind Chicago in terms of it's six million people. So they're calling everybody in the phone book. And, and they're asking them to pray. And this starts spreading out all over that area. And it starts spreading in the neighboring states. And it goes through Illinois. Incidentally, all my forebears, my grandmother and my grandmother and my grandfather, uh, were married in Piperville, Illinois. You can look it up. It's actually a town. And so, I, my, you know, my ancestors uh, come from this state. Well, people in Illinois were praying for me. And it just went coast to coast. And then it started going around the world. A very short period of time, thousands and thousands and thousands of people are praying for the pastor who's in the wreck on his way to church. They don't know I'm already dead. One man does. He's in the car praying over my dead body. And he's now began to alternate verbal prayers with musical prayers. We just sang some musical prayers offered to God. He's singing an old one called, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. This is a great song. And he's singing this song, holding onto my right shoulder under that tarp in the dark. And he's been under there for almost an hour and a half. It's now 1.15 in the afternoon. The accident occurred at 11.45 a.m. 90 minutes after the truck ran over and killed me. This next picture is what that car looked like at the wrecking yard. It was a horrible accident, and that's where Dick was, praying over my dead body. Suddenly, under the tarp, in the dark, without any warning, 90 minutes after the truck hit me, as he sang, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, I started singing the song with him. And he got out of the car really fast. Yeah. Wouldn't you? Yeah. Now, you might not have done this. He went over to the policeman and said, 
this poor guy, he badgered to let him get in the car, and he said this, Officer, the dead man is singing. <laughs> and uh, nobody believed that. It's unbelievable. I wouldn't have believed it, but it was true, because I remember singing with him under that tarp. Didn't know who he was, but I remember singing. So now he's got to convince them that I'm alive and to get me out of that wreck. Well, he finally prevailed, and they did check on me, and they found out I was alive. Not very, but alive. And then they ordered that equipment you saw in front of the car from town 30 miles away. It was originally brought, eventually brought out, and they had to dismantle the car. I don't know if you can see it on this picture, but the, but the roof has been actually removed and then put back on the car. They tried to get me out as close to one piece as possible. I was impaled on the steering wheel. This is before airbags, so I was, my, my, um, my chest was crushed. I had internal injuries. Uh, my head uh, was uh, uh, just basically cracked open. I had blood coming out of my ears and eyes and nose. Um, no doubt I had brain damage. My wife still thinks I have brain damage, and uh, <laughs> I'm inclined to let her think that. Sometimes it comes in handy, you know. And uh, my legs were crushed. When the, dash, when the truck went over the hood, the dashboard collapsed on both of my legs uh, under the dashboard. And my right leg was broken at the knee so that my leg no longer went um, this direction. It went the opposite direction. Then it hit right above my left knee about an inch. I must have slid in the seat a little bit. It about an inch above my left knee. When it did that, it just severed my left leg. Cut it in two. Four inches of femur. That's the largest bone in the human body. Was ejected from the car and never found. Must have gone over the railing into the river, I guess. I put my arm up like this when the truck was coming for me. And I don't remember the collision, thankfully, but I, I must have at least put my arm up. And when I did that, the truck went over me at exactly that moment and took my left arm into the back seat of the car and from here forward was lying on the back seat of the car. They said I would never walk again. If I lived, I would be vegetative and have brain damage. It was a horrific scene. I was put on the gurney when they got me out of there and taken to a series of hospitals. This next picture is just kind of a sampling of the hospitals I went to. I mean, the first one was local and maybe 15 miles away, and they could really not treat anything like my injury. Uh, they sent me to a regional hospital probably another 30 miles away, and there I was at least stabilized, and they made arrangements to have me airlifted to the nearest level one trauma center, which would have been in Houston, which is where I was headed. And... Uh, they were going to airlift me there, obviously by helicopter, but the weather being the way it was, helicopters couldn't take off and land. The ceiling was too low for them to fly. So I found myself in the back of an ambulance careening down Interstate 45 on the way to Houston, 85 miles away. It was in the back of that ambulance that all this came into focus for me. I finally understood that I had been in a horrific wreck, I knew that I was in terrible shape because the doctor in Huntsville said I was, and he wasn't trying to scare me. He was trying to help me understand what they were trying to do for me. <clears throat> I looked at my oxygen basket. The young EMT was taking care of me as we're careening in and out of lanes on I-45, trying to get to Houston as fast as possible. And I said to him, obviously flat on my back, he's above me, sir, is there any way you could give me something for pain, please? I, I didn't know you could hurt like that. 
I had so many broken bones and open wounds that every time my heart would beat, it would be like hitting those places with a hammer. I said, could you give me something for pain, please? He looked down at me. He said, Mr. Piper, I'm sorry, I can't give you anything else for pain. If I give you anything else for pain, you'll probably just pass out. Um, it's kind of what I'm shooting for, I'd like to pass out. I mean, did you just ever want to be unconscious? It hurt so bad. We drove along a little further, and um, let's see, the doctors in Houston had told him to keep me conscious at all costs. They were afraid if I lost consciousness in that ambulance, they wouldn't be able to get me back again. We drove along a little further, and I kept hearing these screams in the ambulance, and they were horrible screams, frightening screams. And this time I, I kind of tugged on his, um, you know, I didn't break this arm, so I kind of tugged on his jacket or something, and I said, Sir, is there any way you can make all that screaming stop? It's very, very disturbing to me. This time he turned around, he looked down at me. He's a young man, he, uh, emergency medical technician. And I was struck by the fact that he had tears in his eyes as he looked down at me. And I, I thought years later, you know, these people see things that no one should ever have to see. And it, it, it matters to them. It affects them. It sure affected him. He looked down at me and he put his hand on my right shoulder, you know, the only thing I didn't break. And he said to me, Mr. Piper, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but besides the driver and myself, there isn't anyone else in the ambulance. Mr. Piper, you're screaming. I was a 38-year-old pastor on his way to lead a Bible study on a Wednesday night. Now I'm in the back of an ambulance on I-45, and I'm screaming. I don't even know it's me. I don't think I've ever been more frightened in my life than I was at that moment. Because I knew from then on, I was never going to be the same again. I had the accident at 11.45. I arrived at the emergency room at Herman Hospital in Houston at 6.15 that night, six and a half hours after the wreck. And from that night forward, I would be in a hospital bed for 13 months, and I would have 34 operations to try to put me back together again. So we learned some important things beginning that night. We knew them already, but they became real for us. Number one, I believe that God answers prayer. And number two, I believe that God is still in the miracle business in the 21st century. And I may not look like much, but I'm both of those things. I mean, the only reason I'm here is because a lot of people prayed and God said yes. I had nothing to do with it. If I had a choice, I would have stayed there and I'd come back here. This is a nice place, but I'd really rather be there. These people prayed and God said yes. You know, in that same discourse in John chapter 14, Jesus is trying to prepare them now for his departure in the flesh, but his words in the spirit that will come back for them in the years to come. He said this to them because he knew they were going to need this. If you ask it in my name... I will do it. You see? He said, when you ask me for anything in my name, I will do it. Now, this isn't just name it and claim it. You know, in my name really means it coincides with the will of God. But he wants to hear from you. I mean, whether we realize it or not, or whether we even acknowledge it or not, we were created for fellowship with God. And he wants to hear from his kids. That's what prayer is, is talking to God. 
So these people were all talking to God. It just happened to me they were pleading, begging, screaming, doing whatever they needed to to try to tell God that they didn't want me to die even if they didn't know who I was. I mean, 25 years later, I am still meeting people for the first time who prayed for me that day while I was on the bridge. Met four last year. Wow, what a reunion that is. And they're still praying because they know it works. So they're all praying. Jesus, have you asked him my name? Oh, now sometimes the answer to our prayers is no. Have you noticed this? I mean, some, I mean, I've lived long enough that I'm glad God has answered some of my prayers. No. If I got what I asked for at the time, it would have been a disaster. I have often discovered that God is not on our schedule. We have to get on his. And so uh, that's why the Bible says in the fullness of time. Because God is always on time. His time. And that's the right time. But here's what I have really come to understand. I'm often aiming low on my prayers. <laughs> you know, I'm praying down here and God is answering way up here. I mean, I was killed in a head-on collision with an 18-wheeler. These people are praying that I'm going to live. And not only did I live, I walked into this place tonight. When I'm finished, I'm walking out of here. I think God answers prayer. Yeah, I, I, I believe that. My father was in the U.S. Army. My father uh, fought in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. All three. Had a chest full of medals to show for it. My dad is an authentic American hero. My dad would come and see me in the hospital. It was a 250-mile trip one way. And my mother would drive down and, and kind of get ready for this, prepare yourself, but this is what I looked like in the hospital. I... Uh, I lost my left leg and they had to figure out how to try to put it back on. I lost my left arm and they had to figure out how to try to put that back on. I had uh, broken pelvis and brain damage and just all kinds of stuff. And so I was really in hideous shape. That device on my left leg had never been used before in this country. The technology had only been patented three weeks before the accident occurred. The equipment itself had to be flown to Houston. That's one third of it. Uh, from Atlanta, because that's where it arrived in the United States. That's a bone-stretching device named after the doctor who invented it from Siberia, Dr. Elizarov. It involves breaking your leg in another place, putting these halos of stainless steel around your leg with wires and rods going through you and out the other side, holding your bones in place as if they were still connected, but they're not. And so they turn screws on these things four times a day to try to stretch the bone inside, hoping that one day they will eventually rejoin. I wore it for 11 months. And uh, the, the one on my arm, if you could go back to the picture before, uh, please, I'd appreciate it. Um, all the, the bones in this arm are actually transplants. Uh, all the bones in this arm came from my right hip. They harvest the bones out of the pelvis and they put them in here. All the skin off of that arm on that arm came from my right leg. Uh, medical people have a wonderful knack for finding things you didn't even hurt and hurt that for you to fix the other stuff. <laughs> so uh, that's the way I lay in the bed unable to move for many months. I couldn't do a single solitary thing for myself. Use your imagination. Sitting down at the end of my bed was the drill sergeant, Ralph Piper, my dad. My mother didn't come into the room very often for obvious reasons. She came in a couple of times and lost consciousness and they had to carry her out. But dad, the old drill sergeant, he'd seen everything. Vietnam, 
Korea, World War II. He's sitting down at the end of that bed, room 2115. And he talked about sports, and he talked about football, he talked about cars, and, and then the room got very quiet. And the old crusty drill sergeant, by this time racked with arthritis, his arms and hands were kind of just like claws. And he got up from his, his chair and he went around to the other side of the bed. In the extreme top corner, you can see my unbroken arm, the only thing I did break. My dad, the old drill sergeant, leans down and takes my hand, and this is what he says into my ear. There's no one else in the room. Son, I would give anything to trade places with you. My dad. See, I might have been a 38-year-old man laying in that bed, but as far as he was concerned, I was a little boy. He hated to see me hurt like that. He meant it. I understand. I'm a dad and a grandfather. I got better. His prayers were answered. And as the years passed, he got worse. You know, Agent Orange, shrapnel, emphysema, congestive heart failure. You'd all caught up with him. And, and the tables were turned. I was driving 250 miles the other way to see him in the hospital. Then there was hospice. There was assisted living. My dad went from a 190-pound guy who could carry a refrigerator in his back to a man who barely weighed 100 pounds, and he lay there in that bed. My brothers and I would go see him. My mother would say, every time we went to see him, it just made his day. He was great for days after that. And you know why? My father liked to hear from his children. And God the Father wants to hear from his. When's the last time you talked to him? Really talked to him? I mean, God wants to hear. He answers prayer. I'm here standing in front of you tonight because God answers prayer. If you ask it in my name, I will do it. Let me ask you a question. This is, this is pretty heavy. What do you suppose would happen around this part of Illinois if just you decided to pray for people who are not ready to go to heaven with a kind of passion Dick on a record did over my dead body? I'll tell you what would happen. A revival would break out here. Why not here? Why not now? If you'd like to see it, it's going to start with prayer. I mean, I, I notice there's some empty seats in here. Why not a revival? I mean, when's the last time you prayed for somebody that you know and care about who's not ready to go to heaven by name? I mean, people you work with, people you live down the street from, people that you're related to, people you go to school with. I know you care about them here. Don't you want to see them there? Tonight would be a good start night to start praying for them. I know it works. I am an answered prayer. I, I had a lot of miracles happen. You're looking at one of them, that device. Frankly, the whole time it was on, it didn't seem very miraculous. I, I wanted to strangle the guy that invented it but remember I only got one hand so I you know the other hand wouldn't work and it was a long dark night I, I, I you know I, I did have brain damage and internal injuries but Dick on a record the man who had the medical background who prayed for me in the car was praying specifically for that when I got to Houston the hospital in Houston 
I didn't have those injuries anymore. So I could chronicle a lot of miracles. And you know what? Jesus talks about that in the same discourse in John chapter 14. And here are the verses where he's talking about miracles. I think it should be the next slide. He says, uh, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these. Because I'm going to the Father. Now let's try to wrap our brains around that statement. It's a very powerful statement. One of the most powerful I've ever seen. Because now consider, he is talking to a bunch of fellas who follow him around for three and a half years and they saw what he did. He's telling them in the upper room before he's beginning to get ready to leave. He's getting ready to be actually arrested. Uh, he's telling them, you know, you know I, I, I gave sight to the blind and, 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 and I caused the lame to walk and they were standing outside the tomb some of them were when Jesus said Lazarus come forth Lazarus comes walking out of the tomb they saw this with their own eyes and now he's telling them that they his followers are going to experience greater miracles than that should we be surprised that God's doing some of his best stuff today yeah See, I believe that if God can resuscitate a dead man in a red car, he could put a marriage back together again. You say, well, that would be a miracle. Uh-huh. Sure would. He can help you overcome an addiction. You say, well, I need help with that. You know that thing that you do that you don't think anybody else knows anything about? That thing? He can help you overcome that. He is able. Well... <laughs> I see people all the time who are dealing with tragedy and loss. I see people all the time who are, who are suffering with their own illnesses. And, I mean, they're just, they, maybe they've gone through bankruptcy. Maybe they're in a financial catastrophe. I mean, uh, Chris and I went down to, to uh, Joplin, Missouri after the hurricane came through. One of the most dastardly storms I've ever seen in my life. And I've seen a lot of storms. I live on the Gulf Coast. It, it was just horrendous. And, and I went to Virginia Tech after all those kids were killed on the campus. And, you know, I held the hands of some of those parents. And, and, I, and, and I've, I've, I've kind of, they needed a miracle. And then I've been back to those places and I've seen the rebuilt places after we kind of raised money for them. And I've been to Virginia Tech and had the parents say to me they had started scholarships to the names of all their kids so that kids who could never go to college otherwise are now going to college because of the scholarship founded in the name of their murdered children. And I've seen the miracles that have taken place, and I think God's doing some of his best stuff now. So I want to say this to your face. If you live long enough, you're going to need a miracle. Only a miracle will do. And I got good news. God is still in the miracle business. I see it all the time. Yeah, a lady walked up not long ago with this book, another book, not another lady, and she said, would you sign my book? I said, sure. She said, would you put my name in my husband's name? I said, sure, what are your names? I'm signing the book, and she says, my husband's sitting over there. I wave at this guy, and he waves back at me. And, and then she says, I haven't seen him in a long time. Your husband, you haven't seen him in a long time? No, we're divorced. And it was a bitter, mean, ugly divorce. I never thought I'd hear from him again. I didn't really care whether I did. He called me last night late. I thought, what is this? My ex-husband, that man over there says, is that dead guy going to be in church tomorrow? I said, you mean the guy that wrote 90 Minutes? He's the guest speaker tomorrow, yeah. My ex-husband says, 
can I come to church tomorrow? I said, you know, I always tried to get you to come to church, but you never would. I know. If I come, can I sit beside you? Sure, I'll save you a seat. He came, Mr. Piper. He sat beside me. Would you pray for us? This afternoon at 2.30, we're meeting in the pastor's office, and today we're going to start over again. See, I think God's doing some of his best stuff now. I see it all the time. God is still in the miracle business. I know I am a miracle. They told me I would never walk again. But I guess you notice after the pastor introduced me, I walked in here. These are my own two legs. And this is that arm they said would never work again. I believe in miracles. I, I have to tell you, I, I'm no hero. I had a hard time with this. I mean, you saw the picture. I really had a hard time. Lots of infections, um, a bit, enormous depression. Um, and I, wasn't, I was depressed that I'd seen heaven and had it taken away from me. I didn't tell anybody I'd seen it. I never planned to tell anybody I ever saw it because I knew I didn't have the words to do it justice. I called it a sacred secret. And so there I lay in the bed year, week after week, month after month. I mean, it was just, just a nightmare, really. And, and I had all these infections, and, and they would have to put me in isolation, and no one could even come in the room where I was without getting fully dressed from head to toe and all this sterilized stuff. I mean, you could see there where my right leg was broken at the knee and where they took some of the skin off my right leg to put it on my left arm. It was just, it just I just can't exaggerate how awful it was. So one night, I'm laying in that very bed in the hospital on the 21st floor of the hospital, and I've had it. I found myself listening to some music beside me and doing this. I don't understand why this happened to me. I was on my way to church to teach the Bible. I wasn't doing anything wrong. Can't you send somebody here who understands what I'm going through? If I could just hold the hand of somebody who gets this, then I think I'll be all right. Well, there wasn't anyone else like that. I had the only one. I had the first one. And so God speaks to me through that music I'm listening to. And here's what he said in so many words. Listen to this. This is not about you. It's about me. While you're having the biggest pity party in the history of the world, instead of feeling sorry for yourself, you need to help other people because you'll understand how they feel. Wow, that hit me like a truck. I mean, it was, it was, it was astounding. And here's what God said. Son, you need to take your, your mess and make a message that's going to bless other people. You need to take the test that you're facing and turn it into a testimony that'll that'll glorify me. You need to take the pain and find the purpose for it. You need to hold someone else's hand and say, I understand how you feel. I've been doing that ever since. It helps me understand why I went through this. And let me suggest this to you. You may have lost your husband, your mother, your son, your daughter, your best friend. And you can either do this I don't understand why you took them. But you need to understand that they were his before they were yours. He just loaned them to you. We don't own each other. 
God owns us. He just loans us to each other. Now, when we get to heaven, we'll never be separated again. But down here, I guess you noticed, we don't get to stay. Maybe what you need to do instead of doing this is this. Let me help you. I, I lost my mother too, and I understand how you feel. Together, we can get through this. Do you see the difference between this and this? Between this and this? This is bitter. This is better. Let me help you. I've been, I've been where you are. Let me help you. We'll get through this. I declared bankruptcy. I, I'll help you. We'll get through it. You can do that. And let me suggest you start tonight with all that baggage that you brought in. I had a lot of it. I'm not kidding. I was signing books at a church north of Houston. It's a church called the Fellowship of the Woodlands. It's a pathetic little church. They have 26,000 people on the weekends. I don't know if they're going to make it or not. They have six services. And I didn't know that before I went. So I'm about in the fourth service thinking, Lord, you're going to have to help me get through this. And I went out and signed books in between the services. So I'm at a, sitting on a stool and they have a table and I'm signing books. And uh, it's a loud crowd. It's a big church and they're loud. I can barely hear myself talk as people are telling me what they want in the book. And suddenly the whole crowd got quiet. I mean, it was like you could hear pin drop in this big auditorium with all these people. And I was in a roped off area and I thought, what's going on? Something must have happened. And I looked up from the book signing and all these people that were in line are looking around me, like behind me. So I knew something must have been happening back there. So I kind of pivoted on my stool and I looked around to see 17-year-old Travis. Travis, high school baseball player who wrecked his leg. And his whole family is with him. His parents, his, 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 his brother, sister, grandparents. And Travis is wearing that device. And he's dragging it behind him. I got off my stool. I said, excuse me. I got off my stool and I started walking towards Travis. And I'm not sure to this night whether Travis wanted to hug me or he just fell. Because I just found that big guy with his arms around me. And tears were rolling down both sides of my jacket and he whispered in my ear I read your book and I heard you were going to be here and I had to come and see you because I have to talk to somebody who understands how I feel and we did I spent the whole day at his house a couple of weeks after that with his whole family Travis has got that thing off now. He's gone through therapy and rehab. I'm not sure he'll ever be a baseball pitcher again. But I do know this. Travis is uniquely prepared to minister to other people in a way he never was before. So when you put your head on the pillow tonight, remember this. You have to look up here to see it. Your choices are these. See, it won't, won't bother God if you're angry at him. He'd rather you be angry than ignore him. But this won't help. Bitter or better. Let me help. I understand. And when you do that, you'll understand why you went through this. 
God help you. When the big truck hit me, I was standing at the gates of heaven immediately. I didn't go down a long tunnel. There wasn't a bright light at the end of the tunnel. I didn't have a near-death experience. When you're dead an hour and a half, you're not nearly dead. It was just like that. I took my last breath on that old bridge. I took my next breath at the gates of heaven. If you read Revelation 21, you'll find out there are 12 gates to heaven. I was at one of them, and wow, what an awesome gate it was. It looked like the inside of an oyster. It was a gate made of pearl. We're told it is, you know, right there in the in Revelation, but, but I, I, didn't, I didn't know what to expect, really. I, I, you know, the words, even of the scriptures, just there just aren't any earthly words to describe a heavenly place. And so I'm looking at this dazzling gate. I thought it was a living gate. But I, I, I reflect on it now, and I'm not so sure it was a living gate. It just looked that way because of the light reflecting off the gate. You see, there's not a sun or a moon in heaven. They don't need either one of them. God illuminates the place with his glory. And Jesus is called the light in Revelation 21. So you're going to bask in the glow of God Almighty and Jesus the light. It's reflecting off the gate and it's very ornate, very elaborate, very beautiful. And I'm kind of panning down from the gate. And I'm looking into my grandfather's face. I told you about my dad, but my mother's father was very special to me and my brother's. My dad was always gone fighting some war, but Papa never left. Papa was a carpenter by trade, which I thought was kind of cool because Jesus was, and, and my son is a carpenter, and, and so it kind of runs in my family, and, and, and Papa was, a, was an incredibly wonderful person. He, he really didn't have any formal education at all. He was born before the Depression and went to work when he was about six or seven and worked all of his life hard, lumberjack, welder, carpenter. But we adored him. We thought he was awesome. I followed him around like a puppy when I was a little boy. I wanted desperately to be like him. And as God is my witness, I'm still trying to be like Papa. And then one night, he died. I got a phone call from my mother. Come quick, Papa's dying. I drove out to the farm where he lived. and My father was doing CPR on his father-in-law. I walked in just before the ambulance arrived. My dad looked up to me and said, is, is that ambulance coming, son? I said, yes, sir, it's right behind me. And he took me over to the side while they worked on Papa and said, this doesn't look good, son. I want you to ride in the ambulance with Papa, and I'm going to stay here with your mother and your grandmother, and as soon as you find out something at the hospital, you call me, I'll bring them up there. I didn't want to ride in the ambulance with Papa, but this is my dad. I told you what he did for a living. He was a drill sergeant, so you just say yes, sir, and do whatever it is he wants you to do. I found myself in that ambulance careening down the highway as they're working on Papa in the back. And, and they took him in quickly and they worked on him. And I know they did everything they could. And in a little while, the door, uh, doors of the emergency room opened. And my, this personal doctor, my grandfather's personal doctor, walked out. And with tears in his eyes, the doctor said, I'm sorry. I did everything I could, but I lost him. I got a lot of broken bones, but nothing hurts like a broken heart. When Papa died, it broke my heart. But now I'm standing at the gates of heaven, and there he is to greet me. And wow, did he look good. If you want to look good, heaven is where you want to be. I mean, you look nice now, but you're going to look really good in heaven. You see, here on earth, all those years of hard labor had taken its toll on Papa's body. He was missing three fingers on one hand and two and a half on the other. I mean, he just was. 
I was fascinated by those when I was a little boy. I remember climbing up in his lap and I remember those little stubs sticking up. Now he's meeting me at the gates of heaven. He spoke a language I, I've never heard before but fully understood. And this is what he said to me. Welcome home, Donnie. And I knew where I was because I knew where he was. And that's what he called me here on earth, Donnie. And I looked at the hands that held me when I was a little boy and all of his fingers were there. The last time I'd seen my papa, he was in a casket at church. He did not look good. Now I'm standing at the gates of heaven, and there he is in the flesh, perfect, and he looked great. He knew I was coming. People often ask me if the people in heaven miss you. No, they don't miss you. They expect you. Yeah. There's no time in heaven. It's eternal. It goes on forever. So remember this. They know you're coming. Every time the Bible says somebody makes a decision here to go there, every time somebody embraces Christ, accepts Christ as Lord, every time that happens, they write your name in a registration book up there called the Lamb's Book of Life. They celebrate your decision. They know you are coming. So you're not going to sneak up on heaven. They know you're coming. And these people were ready to meet me at the gates that day. Papa was expecting me. When I saw him, I knew where I was. Standing right beside him was my great-grandmother. She was a victim of osteoporosis on earth. Here's how she walked. She couldn't stand up straight. Her bones had collapsed. She wasn't missing fingers like Papa. She was missing teeth. My son's peeking to the window. You're missing teeth. <laughs> when I saw her at the gate, she smiled at me. It was the most beautiful smile I've ever seen. I was seeing her real teeth for the first time. My grandmother was about six inches taller in heaven than she was here because she was standing upright. Yeah. You're going to look good in heaven. Yeah. All that standard equipment that you came with that you've lost, it's, you'll, you'll have it. You'll, you'll look good. There were people all around me. There were some friends from high school over here. There were teachers and aunts and uncles and these classmates, two young men that had died tragically when we were in school and right out of, just out of high school. And my next door neighbor, Miss Norris, was here. I look around at that, the horn at all those people that greeted me, and I, I was stunned by this. They all helped me get there. Everybody who greeted me had a part in my spiritual life down here on earth. The two things that they, they had in common were these. They were ready to go when the time came. My great-grandmother wasn't planning on having a stroke the day she had the stroke, but she was ready when she did. She knew where she was going. My friend Mike over here was killed in a car crash at 18. He wasn't planning to die that day, but he was ready because I was in his Bible study class before I became a Christian, and I heard him share his testimony many times. I started this by saying heaven's a prepared place for prepared people. I go to prepare a place for you, you're going to have to be prepared for the place. So if you think you're going to go there because you belong to a church, that's not going to do it. If you're going to go there because you've been good, that won't do it. It's, it's an authentic personal relationship with Jesus. No man comes to the Father except through me, he said. There's not another, another name under heaven and earth whereby you may be saved. Jesus is the way. So these people knew Jesus. They didn't just know him here, they knew him here. And so when the time came, they were ready. I've got to ask you tonight, are you ready? 
Are you sure? I got killed on the way to church. It can happen anytime. The other thing they had in common is they helped me get there. These are the people who took me to church. These are the people who told me about Jesus. These are the people who, who lived a Christian life in front of me so I knew what one was. They're the ones who met me at the gates. Miss Norris was beside me. She took me to church when I was nine years old and I didn't have another way to go. My mother didn't have a driver's license. My dad was overseas. She and her husband were foster parents. and She'd pull up in front of my house and say, Honey, would you like to go to the Lord's house? And I'd say, Yes, ma'am, I surely would. And I'd get in her station wagon and she'd take me to church. And she met me at the gates. She deserved to be there. She helped me get there. So here's the question I started with. Here in Mount Prospect. If we greet people at the gates of heaven, then we help get there. And we will. Who will you greet? That's what you're doing here. It's helping everyone else get there. I think we got a lot of work to do. Don't we? I mean, you got people you go to school with. You got people that you live on the street with. You got people that you work with. You got people you're related to. You got friends. And I know you care about them here. And I know you want to be in heaven with them. Well, bring them to church tomorrow. Next week. Tell them about Jesus. Live a faithful life in front of them. So that one day you'll see them at the gates and spend eternity with them. Isn't that awesome? I'm going through them now and I'm going through the gates. I can see through the gate there's a long boulevard running down the middle of the city. It looks to be made of gold. I know it's $1,600 an ounce, but you can make, God can make his streets out of whatever he wants. And gold. And on both sides are structures, magnificent structures. I would call them mansions. They look like mansions to me. You're going to like these a lot. I'm not sure how much time you want to spend in one. Well, you can do that or you can walk down the street and talk to Mary or Moses. I think I know what I'm going to do, but whatever you want. I'm going in now and I'm going through colors I've never seen before. I'm going through aromas I've never smelled before. I'm going through angels. They're all over the place. You're not going to become an angel in heaven. Actually, God values us and puts us above the angels. But you're going to like the angels. You can actually not only hear their voices, you can hear their wings. What a remarkable sound that was. And so I could hear the wings of angels, and I'm, I'm going through the angels. They're all over the place. Magnificent creatures. They're the ones who bear us up. And I'm going through them, and I'm entering into music. If you like music, you're going to love heaven. They have awesome music up there. Why don't we switch to the next slide? That's, that's kind of history. Okay, there's not another one. Uh, that must be on another uh, PowerPoint presentation. But. There were thousands of songs at the same time in heaven without chaos. Does that make any sense? I mean, all the songs were glorifying God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Worthy is the Lamb. Glory to God they were singing. And soaring above all these thousands of songs dedicated to God was one song, holy, 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 because he is holy, and we're not. In fact, I ask myself, and I know other people have asked themselves, how did I get to heaven? Because I'm not holy. I got witnesses. I'll tell you how. On a Sunday morning, in a church like this, 
I was sitting on the third row of the church, like right there, and the pastor stood and said, who wants to go to heaven? We're taking reservations this morning. And as a 16-year-old, I knew I wasn't ready to go, but I knew everything I needed to do to make reservations. So I left my seat, and I came down and took the pastor's hand, and I said, I want to go to heaven. And he said, son, this is the best decision you'll ever make. He was right. I didn't know that 22 years later, on a lonely highway in East Texas, I was going to get run over by a big truck. But thank God I was ready when the time came. Are you? Are you sure? Because you need to be sure. I'm going in the gates now, through the angels, through the music. There's a pinnacle in the middle of the city high and lifted up. At the top of that is the brightest light I have ever seen. And I want to climb that hill. I want to fall at the feet of the thrones that I saw there and say, thank you for letting me come. Thank you. But I never got a chance. I, I did move through the people. The, the wall is very thick and, and the entrance is very small. So I'm going through this gate and I'm emerging in the other side with my greeters behind me and, and I'm home. I'm not thinking about the people down here. I knew they were coming behind me. And suddenly, as I entered, it all stopped. I mean, silence. I was in the darkness and, and everything silent. And I went from the magnificence and the glory and the majesty of heaven to silence. And I wanted to cry out, God, what's going on? I, I just... I just got here, and before I could even say that, I heard a voice. And this time the voice is not in front of me like heaven was. It's behind me. It's Dick on a wrecker in the wreckage of my car singing that song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, and I was singing it with him. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know why he was making me sing this song. And if you think I didn't know anything then, try lying flat on your back on a bed like that for months. And every single solitary day of my life, I would look up, because it's the only way I could look, is up. And I would ask God the same question. You would have asked the same question. God, why did you let me see that and take it away from me? And the answer I have tonight here in this great church is this. So I could be in Mount Prospect and say to your face, heaven is real and Jesus is the way. So I'm asking you tonight, from my heart to yours, are you, are you ready to go? Are you sure? You may live for decades. I hope you do. But there's no guarantee I got killed on the way to church. You've got to be ready all the time. So if you're here tonight, if you're 16 or 76, you need to be ready. We're taking reservations. Maybe what you need to do tonight is to start to change from this to this. I know I've been through a long dark night, but God help me help others know you. Maybe you need a new normal. You're not going to be the way you were before, but you don't have to be defeated. I've been knocked down, but I haven't been knocked out. And neither are you if you're here. Maybe tonight you need to begin to pray for someone. It could be your husband. It could be a next door neighbor. It could be a classmate. It could be somebody that's on your heart and mind right now that you really love here. A sister, a brother that you want to see in heaven someday. But you're not sure they're ready to go or not. And so you would say to God, God, help me help them know you. And God will bless that every time. 
Don't wait until you figure out what you need to do. Just listen to God and be obedient. Like Dick Honorecker did when he crawled in the car. And see what happened. Heaven is real. Jesus is the way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this church and its willingness to do something like this on a Saturday night. I pray a great blessing on this church and all who serve here. I pray that wonderful, amazing, incredible things will happen here. I pray its best days are even yet to come. Lord, I'm praying right now for individuals. We've got men and women, boys and girls of all ages here tonight. I'm praying that each of us will search our own hearts and discover what it is that we need to do. Some really need to begin to witness. Some really need to begin to share their faith. Uh, they need to think of people that ought to come to church with them. And, and they need to live a Christian life in front of those people. And they need to tell them about Jesus. They need to invite them. God, help us help others know you. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we can actually see some of those people. A brother a neighbor, a worker that we work with, have for years. Maybe a best friend. We're not sure about their salvation at all, so God help us. We're praying for them right now. We lift them up to you. Others here in this room with this many people, there's some people who really came in brokenhearted. They've got heavy burdens. And I'm praying, Lord, they will turn the pain into a purpose. And they will begin to use that to bless others. And if they do, I know it's going to bless them back every time. Show them what to do, Lord. Shine the light on their paths. Others still, truth be told, they may even be members of the church. They, they may come from a family who professes Jesus. The truth is, deep down inside, they're really not sure they're going to heaven at all. Maybe it's something they did. Maybe it's something they didn't do. But one way or the other, they don't feel certain about this. And the Bible says we can know that we are saved. So Lord, I'm praying for those people right now. If you're one of those people and you're not sure that you're going to heaven when you die, I'd like to pray for you. And in a moment, I'm just going to ask you to lift up your hand. No one's going to be looking around. I'm not going to come to where you are and I'm not going to identify you in any way. By raising your hand in a moment, you're just saying, I'm not sure I'm going to heaven when I die, and I would like to be sure. Please pray for me, Don. That's all you're saying. If that's you, just let me see your hand. Pray for me. That's all you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. You. Just I'm, Please pray for me. That's all you're saying. I'm not sure, and I want to be sure. Put those hands down if you would. Lord, you've seen the hands. Honest people asking for prayer. Lord, I suspect there were probably some other ones that just couldn't quite go up. I'm praying for all of them. I'm praying, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit that you will show them in their heart of hearts. It's a, it, they're able to know about salvation. By bowing their heads and hearts and just saying to you in their own words, Jesus, I, I, I know you are who you say you are, the Son of God. And I know you died on the cross for me. And when you did that, you defeated death and you, you defeated sin. I am a sinner and I am sorry for my sins. And I'm not just sorry. I want to turn from them. Tonight, beginning tonight, I want to turn from them. And live for you. Come into my heart and save me. 
and then I want to serve you. Shine the light on my path. I'll be faithful from this day forward. Until that day when you call me home, I want to be faithful. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for coming in my heart. The Bible says if you say it and believe it, they're singing your name right now in heaven. They're writing it on the, on the Lamb's book of life. They're expecting you. You'll never have to worry about this again. It's a done deal. You just need to live for him from now on. And we'll see you there one day. If that's you, and you've made that decision, I'm going to ask you one more time, with heads bowed and eyes closed. If that's you, just lift your hand and say, I made that decision tonight. I know where I'm going. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, thank you for these decisions. We celebrate them. We joyfully, we joyfully give you the praise for new names written down in glory tonight. For all those of us who made that decision, we are humbled and honored that you saved us. And now, Lord, to celebrate all this, we need to go out and help others know you. Beginning right now. Lord, I may not meet these people here. There are a lot of them and there's only one of me. So my prayer tonight is, if I don't see them here one of these days, I'll see all of these people at the gates of heaven. And may God be with them until that day. Pastor's coming now to conclude the service as the Lord leads him.